Hey guys, it's your host Peter Huseth, and you're listening to Millennial Highway. So, the guy you're about to listen to, Karan Jareth, was in high school during the Deepwater Horizon crisis. He wanted to make a difference and ended up developing a device that recycled oil out of the ocean. It took him over 50 iterations and over a thousand of hours of hard work. Eventually, he reached success in an international science fair. His successes led him to become a Forbes 30 under 30, a UN young leader, and a voice to inspire you to take massive action. Enjoy. Hey guys, Jordan Harbinger here, former host of The Art of Charm and current host of The Jordan Harbinger Show, because I'm really creative with naming my new show, apparently. And now, I'm helping out a good friend of mine, Peter Huseth, with his podcast, Millennial Highway. You're listening to Millennial Highway. This is the podcast of your generation. You're on the highway of life, so why not join us in the fast lane? Hey, guys. Uh, this is Peter Huseth, your host of Millennial Highway. Today, we're here with someone really cool. We're here with Karan Jarrett. He's a Forbes 30 under 30, a United Nations young leader and the genius behind the solution of the Deepwater Horizon crisis. Karan, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. So, <laughs> so tell me how uh, you know, you're, you're claiming the fame. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for 11 years prior moving to the U.S. in 2008. And in particular, we moved to Friendswood, Texas, so close to the Houston area around 30 minutes away from the Gulf of Mexico, which is where the deep water horizons will happen. And in high school, I became very involved with the science for program and ultimately used that as a platform to determine my career path, but to also find ways to be creative and innovative. And ultimately throughout my four years in the science for program, um, in my third year, so as a junior in high school, I decided to look into subsea oil spills. That too, given we lived, like I said, 30 minutes away from the Gulf of Mexico. so at the time of the BP spill, this was something that, you know, played a very large or had a very large role in my community, especially because this was a three month long spill that released 210 million gallons of crude oil into the ocean, contaminated 1200 miles of coastline and cost around 60 to $80 billion in fines. And so it really hit home that not only did it affect the economy and the surrounding regions, but also, and most importantly, the marine life and ecosystem. So I decided to start tackling this solution. And through um, research, I identified a potential way in which I could become involved. And that was reinventing one of the many devices that BP had implemented during the time of the spill. And this device in particular was called the Cofferdam. And what this does, or what it did, was it sat on top of the leak two miles below the surface of the ocean, so at the source of the spill and essentially collected the water, oil, and gas being released. And the purpose was for this tube-like structure to essentially collect the water, oil, and gas, and then burn it at the end of the day. There were a few problems that caused this from um, being successful, and that ultimately led to abandoning, abandoning the concept. However, I thought there was a lot of potential and decided to redesign it to where my device now has the ability to not only collect the water, oil, and gas and solve the problems they were having, but it also allowed you to separate the water, oil, and gas at the source of the spill. So immediately to where you can bring the phases up to recycle rather than incinerate. And I competed at the science for programs and ultimately 
um, did well at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, which is the world's largest pre-collegiate science fair competition for high schoolers. When you first had this idea about reinventing the oil spill device, how old were you? I would say I was around 16 to 17 years old. Um, yeah, and at that time I had no you know, formal degree or education in the field that I was entering. So it, it really came with really trying to utilize my resources to the best of my abilities, such as finding mentors or teachers um, who can assist me in any way and provide resources. But it was a, a big challenge that really excited me at the end of the day as well, because I knew the impact that it could provide. Yeah, that's really cool. Like when you first kind of had the idea, were you like, yeah, you know, maybe one day I could do it? Or were you more so like, this is, has to happen, it's gonna happen this way, and I'm gonna be the kid to save the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't think it, it happened like that. I, at the time, like being very honest, I myself was very confused with the long-term implications or strategy that I could take to solving this. It was more so for me personally, an opportunity for me to um, grow and develop and gain new skill sets that I did have access to. So I wasn't thinking of it too much from where it could take me, but more so what can I learn from this opportunity, whether I fail trying or succeed trying at the end of the day, it was just a learning opportunity for me. Wow. Yeah. I think that's really important. I feel like that might've been part of the reason for your success because you focused on, kind of the here and now versus the exactly. fame and accolades you could receive if you did become successful. Exactly. And at that time too, I grew up as a very shy and reserved kid. So my main thing was just breaking out of comfort zones. And this was the perfect opportunity since it not only allowed me to take initiative when it came to finding the right resources, as well as doing research, but also a lot of the science fairs are pitching competitions where you know, you're meeting hundreds of judges and talking to them as much as you can. And so this was a way for me to, to better that skill set as well. How much time did you put in outside of school for, the, for these projects? Yeah, so for me, because I was very dedicated to what I was doing, I was very passionate about what I was doing. Um, I would sacrifice weekends and vacations, for example, um, leading up to when this project was due for my school. Um, just months prior, it was every day going to the office that my mentor had where the software was that we were using to simulate. Um, it was every weekend, um, whether it be also along with that, whether it be Thanksgiving break or winter break, it was just spending as much time in the office as possible. A lot of it was also because something like this had not been done to the extent that I was trying to do it. Um, it came with a lot of trial and error. And so just making sure that we had the time to, to fail and reiterate and pivot in terms of the idea. So it's taking all of that, those factors into account as well. How are you able to like actually test your device um, and actually see if it would fail or succeed over and over again? Exactly. So one thing that I would like to note is that I've not physically built this device. It's very large in terms of it's 72 feet in height and has a 42 foot diameter and made out of carbon steel material, which is a very expensive material. So the approach I took was to prove it on modeling software, which is one of the first steps when it comes to solving problems like this. And so within the modeling software, not only was I able to change designs very quickly and efficiently, but the software had capabilities of simulating 
what a spill would look like based off of the inputs that I provided. So when it came to doing that portion, it was sort of looking at what happened with the BP spill and what has happened with other spills um, over the course of history and trying to replicate those environments with the conditions that we're making the software simulate at. And ultimately then just reading the values or the criteria and metrics we were looking at that would, uh, that would prove that this would be successful. For example, one of them was making sure that the device was able to completely separate the oil, water, and gas into separate phases within the device. And so a component of that was looking at the readings of what was coming out of the device and making sure that it was as close to 100% of oil, water, and gas, um, as well as just the volume that the device was able to withstand. So really stress testing the device on the simulations to see where its limits would be um, in the event that it was actually applied uh, for a subsea setting. I'm curious though, like, you know, you're 16, 17 years old at the time. Um, aside from working on the project all the time, like, are you also like digging into textbooks and trying to figure out what goes on, like, in the deep water, uh, like all the physics and everything that go on with building a machine like this? Yeah, that was definitely one component of it. During my time in high school with the Science for Project, it was prioritizing what my research would be focused on to not understanding the technical point to where it wouldn't be applicable to what I was trying to solve at that time. That second component that you just mentioned right now came while I was in college where I had more of a solid foundation after having taken classes like fluid dynamics or thermodynamics and um, other, you know, Classes. Right, right. So it's just a matter of balancing time and better, best using my resources. That's interesting. So, like, were your uh, your mentors? I remember you told me earlier that one of your mentors uh, let you work in NASA's lab. Yeah, so that was my very first science fair project, not related to the spill. Um, that was one of my class friends' moms, um, and she was willing enough to let me test E. coli samples at NASA um, in, in Texas. So that was a very unique experience. And I think it was that point where I realized the ability of where, or what the impact science fair could have on someone to where that experience ultimately led me to continue doing or continue pursuing the science fair process. So once you like started getting uh, more notoriety or, or more of a competent device did anything change about your methodology yeah absolutely so that's a great question so how i did it was i broke it up into two in the sense that the very first phase of this you could say was just creating the device on the software you know getting the design right not so much optimizing it that was left for phase two but phase one was more so just proving that something like this could be created and that this was the software that would allow us to best simulate with. And so this came with design iterations. I believe I went through at least 50 plus different designs of just tweaking various components, changing sizes, um, different valve shapes and overall design shapes. Um, and then it was running and then it was creating the environment that the device would be simulated in so replicating the behavior of the deep water horizon spill and just applying that to the final or a version of the device and seeing what the capabilities of the device was to be able to withstand that sort of environment and it was simply just proving that okay this can be done 
And then phase two came in my second year of the science for program where it was more optimizing. So optimizing consisted of further fine tuning various design components, as well as trying to better the separation process that I'd mentioned earlier, given that to me, that was one of my, one of the most unique cells of the device, especially from an environmental standpoint, if we're able to recycle these phases in some form, that sort of changes the game of what a cleanup device could look like, right? Because typically for a company like BP, it's so much easier to burn the device or start to burn the, the spill or the crude oil being released rather than to try to salvage it in any form. So it, the second phase was trying to make sure those metrics and parameters were as fine-tuned as possible. Likewise, while I did understand that the BP spill was probably one of the worst subsea oil spills in modern history in the event that another one were to happen in a different geographical region the device should be able to withstand those conditions so i looked at other areas like the north sea um, or the santos basin in um, south america so putting placing it in different environments and then more so stress testing so basically you're designing your device so it can be universal throughout the world exactly. in case another oil spill come out exactly that's really cool so once you once you started to uh become successful with your device and you started to acquire your um become a forbes 30 under 30 and then un uh leader um what was that experience like for you yeah so it was a very surreal experience that was not the path that i'd expected to take while pursuing this device it, I'd say more than anything showed me that as a young person, my voice mattered and that there were organizations willing to give me a platform to then continue to, to grow as well as share my message to other youth. And that's what I've used these other platforms like becoming a UN Young Leader for the Sustainable Development Goals for becoming a member of the Forbes 30 and 30 Energy West 4. Um, and so through that, I also came to realize that the conditions that I were in in terms of being able to have a mentor who'd be willing to sacrifice weekends or a science fair teacher who is my chemistry teacher, um, you know, be putting time outside of school to guide me um, throughout the process. That's not something that everybody necessarily has. And so I then started developing platforms that targeted STEM education and enc encouraging and energizing other youth to take on initiatives and show them that their voice does matter and that I could be an example of you know, this being successful, as well as I then started creating a platform for better understanding the environment we're in from an environmental standpoint. So promoting ocean conservation and preservation. So it was a mix of these two platforms that I've used as a result of these um, accomplishments. That's really cool. Would you, um, I mean, definitely, um, you'd be considered an influential uh, young leader um, as far as the people listening to this podcast, be it high school students or uh, college students or whoever, um, what would you say to encourage them to do well? I would say that, first of all, it doesn't matter how old you are or how much experience you have. Um, I believe that it's our duty as young people, especially to come together and solve these problems, because at the age we're in, we're very optimistic of the world that we live in. And as creative as we can be because we've not experienced as much to limit our creativity and thought 
So when we do come together um, and organize and speak up for what we believe in, we can be very influential because we are offering a different vantage point, fresh ideas and new ways of thinking. And I think that it's our most, it's our biggest strength and most worthy asset that we have. And it's, it's something that we should make sure that we're not losing out on because it's an irreplaceable resource. Likewise, from the standpoint of what others can do, I think the biggest thing is to try to find something that really challenges you and pushes you outside of your comfort zone. So something unfamiliar to you because growth ultimately comes from discomfort. And it's mainly a matter of finding what you're passionate about and figuring out how you can make that, how you can turn that into something lasting and impactful. Yeah, I was looking at your uh, website earlier and correct me if I'm wrong, you had a quote on there saying like, you know, if you're staying comfortable, something might be wrong. I think I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. was it something along those lines? I believe so, yes. Going back to um, the development of the device, um, how significant do you think were the mentors that brought you, that helped you out? Yeah, so at, at that time period for me, they were very influential in the sense that they definitely allowed me to learn and grow and make my own mistakes. So this was not something that they were spearheading in any way. It was me finding myself as well as finding how I could tackle this problem. From their standpoint, it was making sure that I had all the resources that I needed. For example, with learning more about the Deepwater Horizon School, because this was, there was a lot of material that was confidential or not open to the public because of you know it sharing secrets of what bp was trying to do or the method they used since that is something that they have the proprietary information for their main resource was to allow me access to things that i would not have at the high school level so research documents or you know various documents that would not only allow me to learn more about the school but as well as um, better my technical knowledge likewise the software that i used was something that this company that my mentor worked at had Um, and typically I believe it's around a 50 to $80,000 software that the company had multiple licenses for but obviously as a college student that's not or as a high school student that's not something I'd be able to access so it was providing resources such as those so I feel like they were very influential in this whole process and it was ultimately through their support and guidance that allowed me to succeed. So when you were, you know, going through the process of developing a device with your mentors and the people helping you out um, throughout your whole high school career, was there ever a point where you just thought that you couldn't keep going or kind of like a breaking point? I think there were many points in which I was not maybe on the verge of giving up because I couldn't see the long-term vision for this. And that came through just, you know, having to put out fires with what I was trying to do um, and just not having enough knowledge at the time or the results not, the results not coming out as expected. Um, So yeah, there are definitely many times throughout this process. I mean, the fact that I had to go through 50 different iterations, each of which each hopefully show that, you know, this was not something that I immediately got on my first try and that there were challenges in trying to better the design for this, but not only that, but also to better the idea component of this project. Um, but it was during those times where I'd say that I learned the most about myself 
and it taught me more about what I did um, in the face or what I did at a time when failure was something that was potentially inevitable. And it was really just not giving up and trying to be as creative, creative as possible and try to find ways to go around the problems that were being faced. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it really just comes down to how invested you are in what you're trying to pursue and how resilient and persistent you can be. And that was something that I learned along the way um, that ultimately I also believe allowed for the device or for an outcome to be present or for a solution to be figured out for. Yeah, def definitely you need some resiliency for uh, getting to the International Science Fair and, and perfecting your device. Was there, what, what was that push, I guess, to get to keep pushing on to that final uh, yeah. design? Yeah, so I'd say from my end, I sort of knew that with each iteration, regardless of its outcome, it would ultimately push me closer to finding the solution. And whether or not it was happening at the 40th iteration, or, or what have it, um, that I was still just getting one step closer to the ultimate outcome. And the main thing behind that was just being able to continue pushing and seeing it from that side, rather than seeing it from the side of, oh, this has not worked, I'm having to restart. So it's sort of like the mentality that you have when you're pursuing something, especially that something that requires you to pivot multiple times and continue to iterate. It's seeing it from the mentality of each, um, iteration that happens what that ends up not being successful is not distancing yourself from finding the right solution but more so showing you what will definitely not work so it's a learning you or takeaway you can use later on but it's also getting you one step closer to where you need to be what is what is your drive what do you do after your development of uh, the Deepwater horizon uh invention so you're talking about like future yes future well, what since then what okay yes so from this from the deep water horizon spill invention i've realized that i've also it's also solidified where my passions lie and that's within the sustainable and environmental space so i know personally that any future venture that i pursue will always be connected to the environment in some way regardless of the magnitude and scale of how that idea helps environment there just has to be a connection to it because it's something that's very close to my heart and since then i've been looking at other industries to potentially enter outside of energy such as um, something that i see in the future that could be very interesting to pursue is um, water desalinization um, looking at paper wastage that's currently an idea that i'm pursuing with um, another friend right now um, as well as there are a couple other industries that I've identified. I'm hoping to just, at this point in my life, gain better understanding of the pain points within these industries and then continue to ideate on where I could see myself contributing. Um, okay, so last few questions. Uh, our show is uh, starting to get to its 30-minute mark. But, Karan, um, who are some of your biggest role models going through this whole entire process? So some people that I really admire and look at as role models consists of um, my sister. Um, she's someone that 
just growing up, I've seen her work ethic and it's driven me to try to, to replicate just how passionate she can be when she pursues different ventures or different paths. Um, likewise, people like um, Maya Ajmera, who's the CEO and president for the Society for Science in the Public. So that's the big branch that organizes the science for programs around the world. Um, just her passion for STEM education for the next generation is something that really inspires me. Um, there are people like Bill and Melinda Gates and the Obamas for their philanthropic work. Um, there are people like Elon Musk for his big picture vision of society and the fact that he's been able to reverse three potentially dying industries is really something that inspires me while doing all of that at the same time is <laughs> something that you know really motivates me to continue to be the best that I can be. Um, there are people like Jayathma from the UN Youth Envoy, who's, um, this is and this is the branch that the UN Young Leaders are based under, and just her passion when it comes to enga engaging and energizing youth. Um, there are also people like Leonardo DiCaprio for his environmental beliefs and his foundation that works towards um, you know, protecting the environment in all forms, whether it be climate change or endangered species. Um, so it's a mix of people that I'd say I take as many learnings as I can from that ultimately shape the way that I view things. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. You, you have like a very diverse uh, a group of people to look up to for all yeah. different remarkable reasons. It's more of a fun question. Um, what were uh, some fun memories you had throughout this process or some cool people that you were able to meet? Yeah, so for me, um, as one of the UN Young Leaders for the SDGs, um, an op opportunity that I get consists of getting to travel the world and meeting new people. And I think that the thing that energizes me the most when taking on these opportunities is just the other youth that I get to talk and interact with. Um, it's something where you get to learn so much more about their own experiences in the country that they're living in, as well as the problems that they're trying to solve, because it's very different from the ones that we're seeing here in the US. And it just gives you a better view of society and the world in general, um, and how ultimately it's the youth that are gonna be the ones to change things, and that there's so much hope that we, sh that we should and that we can have for the future. So as we're uh, wrapping up our show, uh, Karan, do you have any uh, last words for the uh, youth who are listening to the podcast? Yeah. So I would say that there are many paths to resolution and even seemingly small actions right now can contribute to solving issues that are larger than ourselves. For example, it could be as simple as collaborating with your peers in order to educate communities or participating in civil engagement to emphasize the importance of a cause that you truly believe in, or even reevaluating the practices and capabilities of current technologies. I think that it ultimately comes down to youth believing themselves in, in themselves, because ultimately we're going to be the next generation of problem solvers. Um, and our involvement right now is critical because as the next generation of problem solvers, leaders, engineers, and teachers, a lot of society is going to be shaped off of how we interact and how we decide to contribute. And so overall, I guess my message is to be as involved as you can and never limit yourself by, the, by your age. And at the same time, try things that are outside of your comfort zone because you never know what the learning curve can be for that. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. We're actually reaching over 400 downloads thanks to you guys. If you like the show, please leave a review and share with your friends. Remember, you're on the highway of life, so join me, Peter Hustos, in the fast way.